Thank you very much. Um, thanks for coming along. That was a big relief because it is a different session, isn't it, if you've not been to anything like this before. Uh, I started doing this. Uh, David this morning was talking about, yeah, you know, particularly Peter having a breakdown. Well, I had a big crisis in my life. And uh, during that time, I came across this book called Praying the Movies by a guy called Edward McNulty. And uh, it was at a time when I was really angry about myself and the church and lots of other stuff, really. And, and I really enjoyed this book because it made connections between films and our lives and faith and all that kind of thing, really. And um, then someone said to me, why don't, you, why don't you start doing a little workshop where you show videos? See how long ago it was. It was videos, putting in the machine. And, uh, and showing clips and talking about life and faith. And what I found was that because films go into all kinds of areas of life, it was very liberating because, you know, things like light and darkness, truth and light, temptation, greed, sex, all kinds of things really come up in films. And they're great little, you know, springboards, if you like, for, for talking about these things in relation to faith in God. So that's what I'm going to do for the next hour, show you some clips and uh, there, there'll be a little moment for you to tell someone else if you've got a favourite film or a first film memory when you first went into a darkened cinema, what you saw then, that sort of thing. But I'll say a bit more about that as we go on. Um, quick quiz. I'm going to move away from the mic. Sorry, just for this. Um, there are ten... There are ten films up there, and they all have something really basic in common. It's not deep or spiritual in any way at all. They are part of a group. Quick quiz is, can you guess what that grouping is? Why they're all together, those ten? Anyone like to stick? Yeah. Fantasy. Sorry? Fantasy. Fantasy. Um, they are probably, aren't they? I mean, obviously dinosaurs were real, but apart from that... <laughs> no, it isn't that. It's not that deep, actually. It's not that deep, really. Um, no, it's not a genre. It's not a genre. One Oscars. Sorry? One Oscars. Ooh. Uh, no, but good. That's a good one. to got some very interesting answers. Take one more. Heroes. Certainly there's lots of heroes in there. But again, you're obviously deep think, deeper thinking people than I imagined you were going to be. Yeah. They've all got film stars in. That's true. Yeah. No, uh, they are almost all sequels. Bohemian Rhapsody isn't. Um, okay, I'm, I'm, I've got it. I'm going to move on. Oh, so go on. Good and evil always comes up in movies. You don't have a good story without it. It's actually much more basic than that. They are the top ten films uh, in the UK from last year at the box office. So, in other words, these are the films that people paid to go and see last year. That's the list there. I'm going to move this mic. Can I do that? Just so I'm not in the way. I feel I'm a bit in the way. Uh, so there you go. Uh, anyone going to see Mamma Mia? That was number two. It was because you went to see it, obviously. And uh, there's a lot of Marvel... Ooh, sorry, I've done something terrible, haven't I, because of the speakers. There's, um, uh, there's a lot of Marvel stuff in there. And uh, I'm not a fan of Marvel. Sorry if you are, but... It just doesn't really grab me. But obviously people love those films. So there you go. Uh, let's just do a couple more notices before we start. One of my big beefs in life is why do people go to pay a lot of money to look at a big screen and spend half their time looking at their little one? So please don't. Thank you. 
And uh, that's my disclaimer. When you watch a DVD now, you often get uh, disclaimers about viewpoints. So that's, that covers my back. <laughs> yeah, it's only, it's only half serious, to be honest. But there we go. <laughs> okay. Right. I, I did say I was going to show you my family. So uh, that's my wife, and that's Amy, and that's Lucy eating a donut. That's Lucy sticking her tongue out, and that's my wife, Lynn. And just to show you, Lucy's favourite thing at the moment is cartwheeling. Would you like to see her cartwheeling one-handed? Yes. Thank goodness, because I've got it. Here we go. Look at that. A five, eh? That's pretty good, isn't it, really? There we go. Right, okay. We'll do, you, when you go to the cinema, you should have a trailer, shouldn't you, really? So uh, here's a trailer for a movie called Edie. Did anyone go and see Edie with uh, Sheila Hancock? Yeah? Okay, so uh, just tell you a little bit about it. Edie is about uh, someone who is getting later on in life, and her family want to be sure she's going to be okay, so they suggest that she goes to look at an old people's home. Uh, I don't think it's a care home. I think it's just a <coughs> kind of home that she might go and live in. And, um, uh, but at the same time, as she's going through her old stuff, she comes across a postcard that her dad gave her. And the, her father said to her when she was a lot younger, one day we're going to climb this mountain together, you and me. And, of course, he died, and they never climbed the mountain. So... She finds this postcard and thinks, well, I could either go into an old people's home or I could climb a mountain. So which one shall I do? Have a look at this. Uh, 
one of the things that I came out thinking about having seen the movie is I thought how beautiful Sheila Hancock looked. There was a lot of close-ups on her face, and uh, I just, you know, was really, really taken with that. I thought she was, she was just amazing in it. But um, uh, there's a moment about 20 minutes into this film, and it sometimes happens with movies that, I don't know, around that point, 20 minutes in, something like that, you might get a comment or a conversation which defines uh, kind of what the film is really about. And uh, sometimes you can spot it, sometimes not. And it doesn't matter anyway if you don't. I always, I always think, you know, just what do you take away from a film? You don't have to necessarily get what the writer or director want you to take away. But there is a moment in this film where Edie is wondering what to do. And she's in this cafe eating egg and chips. And it's almost time to shut the cafe. And she calls out to the guy at the counter who she knows, is it too late for some more chips? And he replies... It's never too late for you, Edie. And of course, at that moment, you know what? They're, they're not talking about chips, really. The whole point is we're supposed to reconsider, you know, for her and for ourselves, if you like, the mountains in our lives, you know, the challenges that we face, really. And of course, David was talking this morning about, um, you know, the, the, the ongoing challenge of being a Christian, all the radical you know, that's the radical stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's an ongoing challenge for all of us, isn't it? Whatever age we are, we can still keep growing, we can still keep developing, really. And I was very struck by those, you know, I made the list of the radical things, really, and what that means for us. But no one is a Christian, the whole point of a Christian is that we keep moving, isn't it? And we keep climbing the mountains. And, uh, I guess we've all got them in our lives, whether they're emotional, whether they're actually physical things we're facing, whether they're jobs or unemployment or family or difficult people. We all kind of keep coming up against things, don't we? And it's, you know, I suppose the starting point perhaps is prayer for that. And I know, for example, there's some prayer ministry, isn't there, after this session. Um, So, you know, the first point can always be bringing that to God, that mountain to God, really, and saying, God, help me, because I don't want to climb it. I don't want to have to take this on. But, but it's life, isn't it? It's nature of life. And I was thinking this morning about the Bible. I love the Bible, although I know that it's really hard to read. It's a bit like a really dense Christmas cake, the Bible. There are some of those books in there you don't pick up for light reading, do you? I mean, Deuteronomy or Job or Leviticus, do you know what I mean? But they're all jam-packed with really good stuff you know, if we kind of dig around in them. And one of the things that I take away from the Bible is this. There's hundreds of characters in there, and most of the chief ones are living with mountains in their lives. Their lives haven't got easier because they've got God in them. So for some of them, they've got harder. And it's like our lives, isn't it? The people in the Bible do not have an easy life. What they have is God in their lives, with all the other stuff that is going on, really. And to me, that's one of the vital things about the Bible, that it is this, this book of people wrestling and struggling and trying to climb their mountains. Okay, a uh, bit, bit of comedy for you. We're Johnny English fans in my house, not least because my wife thinks I'm a little bit like uh, Johnny English. I may, they say most men would like to be James Bond, but I think, and definitely for me, it's more Johnny English, I'm afraid. Uh, my wife calls me Frank Spencer sometimes, if you know <laughs> that reference. So anyway, here's a little bit of Johnny. Uh, again, this morning we are thinking about Peter. And one of the things I love about the Bible, not only with Peter, but with other characters, is they weren't afraid to write down the blunders 
you know, and the things that these people did when they thought they were doing the right thing and sometimes literally falling on their face or whatever. So have a think about blunders. And here's a, just a tiny short clip from Johnny English. This is the first one. There's been three films now, but this is the first one. Great moment. She does a great fall, doesn't she? She's brilliant. The way she's going to like that over. Um, one of my... I, I don't know whether I'll get this theologically right, David, but this is just my theory on one of the Peter stories. I love the Peter story about cutting off at the ear in the garden. Um, basically, they, they come to arrest Jesus, and there's a high priest servant there, part of that group. And Peter, I think probably several of them would have had swords because I think they were expecting some sort of showdown with the authorities. Uh, and uh, Peter lashes out and hacks off the nearest ear. And in one of the Gospels, I think it's in Luke, it's recorded that Jesus heals the ear. But uh, what it doesn't tell you in, uh, um, I think it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, is who did it. It's only John, bless him, who says, get it down, is another blunder of Peter's. Get it right down there in black and white. And the thing that makes me smile is, um, in, um, we were hearing this morning about how Mark got his information from Peter. So I just wonder if there was a scene one time where Peter's explaining about the fight in the gar- you know, this garden. And, and uh, he says, you know, and someone lashed out, cut off the ear. Mark goes, can you remember who it was who cut off that ear? And Peter's going, do you know, it was really dark. <laughs> and there were so many of us. Please don't put down another one of my mistakes. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But... Um, for me, it's very heartening to read of these disciples uh, who, and, and the Old Testament characters who, you know, blunder along, really. And, uh, and uh, as David was saying about the raw material, we're the raw material, aren't we? And we can keep coming back to God. And he will use us. I, was read, I read a great book on Jonah last week called Journeying with Jonah. Uh, it was by a guy called Dennis McBride. And he unpacked Jonah in a very unusual way, really. But basically, the thrust of it was, Jonah's almost an accidental evangelist. He doesn't want to be doing evangelism. And, and yet, he keeps bumping into people. There's a bunch of sailors on a boat when he's trying to run away from God. And he converts them. And then he goes to Nineveh, and he doesn't want to be there. And then he, I mean, he converts a city. Who wouldn't want that to happen? Well, Jonah, actually. you know. And there he is, blundering along, partly worried about his own image, really. Because, you know, when we really find out the real reason when he says at the end, I knew if I came, I knew you were full of grace, God. And if I told people, you know, they were going to be destroyed, I knew that if they repented, you'd forgive them. And now how bad do I look? Thanks very much. You know, and that was his frame of mind. But God, you know, using him. And in the book, uh, Dennis McBride used a lovely phrase. He talks about the stubborn mercy of God, which blessed Jonah as much as it did the people of Nineveh. They both received the stubborn mercy of the God who wouldn't give up on them, really. Okay, what have we got now? 
Okay, a bit of a song here. Uh, it's a film called Sunshine on Leith. Anyone seen this? Um, do you know the... Um, well, we've had two Mamma Mia films now, haven't we? Which where basically they take the ABBA songs and write really complicated stories around them, don't they? That's a joke, by the way. But anyway... <laughs> but they're great. You know, they're real feel-good stuff. Well, that's, you know, that's what they did here. They took the songs of the group, The Proclaimers, turned it into a stage show, and then the stage show became a film. And it's set in Scotland, because that's where The Proclaimers are from. And the film's called Sunshine on Leith, but I'm going to show you a scene that was filmed and is set in Edinburgh. And um, I think a lot of the people you're going to see here aren't actors. I'm pretty sure with the budget they would have had, they would have simply put an advert in the local papers and said, if you want to be in a film, turn up on this day, at this time, this place, and we'll show you what to do. And so have a, uh, watch how this scene plays out. You don't need to know the story, just basically people are falling in love, so they sing and dance. What else would you do, really? Here you go.
So you've seen the routine. If you'd all like to stand up, <laughs> we'll give it a go. Um, no, but as I say, you know, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the people, as you saw, were just, just ordinary folks, you know, that were around. And I love it that there's people of all ages there. And it's a bit like what people sometimes call a flash mob routine, if you know of those. Um, basically where a group of people launches usually a song and dance or something like that on an unsuspecting group of people in order to make their day better, not worse. If you want to look up one, there's a really good one called the Alleluia Chorus Food Court, which is a brilliant example, really. Brilliant example of bringing the kingdom of God actually into a very ordinary food court type place. But... um, so you get this whole scene here. And when I watch it, I always think of things like, you know, Palm Sunday or the feeding of the 5,000. Because I think like the feeding of the 5,000 was a little bit like Jesus doing a flash mob experience. Because what happens is, it's all okay if Jesus is telling stories and teaching and that sort of thing for all these people to be together because they were from all walks of life. But I think I'm right in saying that they weren't allowed to eat together because that would cross boundaries in their society. And, you know, you've got the very religious there and you've got this kind of rich and the poor and maybe some sick, I don't know. But, you know, different, different people from different classes of life and they don't normally get to share food together. And suddenly, when Jesus breaks out the bread and fish, it's like a flash mob moment because it's kind of demonstrating this invitation that Jesus often talked about the kingdom of God being a feast. You know, it's interesting. He doesn't say a church service or a temple uh, event or anything. He says it's a feast. And literally, this is a feast now. And he's basically demonstrating, saying, dive in. If you want to come with me, if you want to join in, make the choice, put your hand in the basket, and let's share this food, and let's, let's eat together. And uh, there's that invitation in Revelation uh, chapter 3, one of the last sort of invitations from Jesus in the Bible. And he talks about knocking at the door of our lives. And that's all about food. He says, if you open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. And that's because eating with us is for, in their culture, was a great sign of respect and sharing of lives. We share our life with Jesus, he shares his life with us. So with the feeling of the 5,000, you get people like this from all over who never expected that day, I bet, to get that kind of blessing. And, and I can sympathize with like, people like the Pharisees and the religious elite who had their own rules about what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And, uh, for example, you know, they, they had ideas about spiritual cleanliness, you know, contamination. And they probably thought, well, if a prostitute's had a hand in that basket, and I put my hand in to get some bread, I'm going to be unclean. So I can't, I can't join in. And there's Jesus going, grab a loaf, grab some fish, grab a chunk of bread. Just, it doesn't matter. This is about something else. This is God working now in a whole new way to invite you in. Uh, and we heard this morning, didn't we, a little bit about kind of rules that, that, that were being piled on top of, of the commandments that God had given to Moses, you know, and the way that, was, that had become restrictive. And here's Jesus walking through those extra rules, saying this is about something else entirely, really. So I watched that, you know, and the same with Palm Sunday, really, all these people being swept up into something. And they may not have understood it at all, but they saw something and they wanted to be part of it. And some of them presumably would have gone on to be disciples later on. Okay, I listen to a program on Five Live every Friday. Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo. If you listen to it, to it you're called a Wittertainee. Is there any other Wittertainees in the room? Oh, there are. Okay, oh, there you go. Right, okay, yeah, okay. So uh, I'd better say hello to Jason Isaacs. And you'll know what I mean, and nobody else will have any idea. Don't worry. Um, 
But this is their rules, the code of conduct, when you go and watch a film. I don't know if you break any of these. I think some of these I'm okay with and some of them not. It's very interesting, things like no hobbies, because apparently some people knit in the cinema. Anyone here knit when you go to the cinema? That would be interesting. It's whether or not the needles make a really loud clickety-clack sound. How about taking off your shoes? Anyone take off your shoes in the cinema? Yeah, you see, I don't mind that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. <laughs> but um, definitely, as I mentioned, uh, no, no mobile phones. Um, irresponsible parenting. There's been stories lately of people taking their babies and changing their nappies in the cinema. I don't think that's acceptable, really. It can be an awful uh, kind of lingering sense of smell, can't there, in the air? That happens. But anyway, there you go. There's just a few rules for you. All right, in a minute we'll do the thing... Um, if you've got a film that you've enjoyed either all your life or very recently, or you can remember your first cinema-going experience, you have a chance to tell the person next to you in a minute after I've shown this clip. Okay. This is one of the clips I've used loads. I do, I do love this moment. It's in a film called The Boat That Rocked, which is all about... Um, uh, uh, remember Radio Caroline? Oh, you're all too old. Uh, young, I'm sorry. Young. Um, but, <laughs> got that one. Freudian slip there. Um, you know, Radio Caroline and Radio London and all that, Radio Luxembourg. So this is a fictional one, Radio Rock. It's set on a boat. It's in the 60s uh, where, the, the, you know, the national radio stations hardly played any rock and roll and they played it 24 hours a day. And uh, basically what's happened is this character, Carl, is on a very bad day. He's had his heart broken. He's really in a bad place. And he's got two friends here and they think, we don't know what to say. I mean... I don't know. I don't know what you're like. I'm a bit like that. I never know. I'm not very good, really, to know what to say to encourage people. They think, We've got to do, we want to do something to lift his spirits and say we're on your side. So this is what they do. visual storytelling as well. I didn't need any words. They just sit and share a cup of tea. But, um, you know, um, 
in, in a strange kind of way for me, that's kind of, that embodies or reminds me of the very nature of Jesus. The f- most fundamental thing God did as Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus. He came and sat down with us. He came into the grit and the grime and the dust and the sweat. And that was one of the kind of overarching things. I mean, John's gospel, John begins by saying they've seen the glory of God. And I'm guessing this, what he went on to say was quite shocking for some of his first readers or hearers. Because, I mean, for one thing, in the Old Testament, you were afraid of the glory of God because you might, you most likely would die. A lot of the prophets, when they see God, they're worried they're going to die. And the people don't want to go up the mountain with Moses because they're worried they will die. And John starts off by launching in saying, we've seen the glory of God. And effectively, he says, we didn't die. In fact, we felt better. And read my book. And you'll see that the glory of God was a carpenter and, you know, he sat down with all the wrong people and he talked to all the wrong people that everyone else was excluding, you know, and pushing down or the people that seemed unclean. You know, and we read the Gospels and here's Jesus touching dead people. Well, you didn't do that not, because, of, you know, if nothing else, there was no NHS. So you didn't want to get sick yourself. So you stayed away from sick and dying people, people with leprosy. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is he touched people with leprosy. I mean, he healed them as well, but he touched them. He reached out to them. And, you know, kind of this picture of the God who sits down with us and with you and I and probably does sit down with us now, but in somebody else. I mean, kind of, in some ways, one of my big questions for God when I get to heaven or whatever might be, you know, why were you so invisible? But in fact, you know, what it's become is that we, we are the hands and feet of God, aren't we? We get inspired by the Holy Spirit, strengthened, nudged, shoved sometimes by the Holy Spirit to go and, you know, encourage someone, listen to someone, challenge someone. We become these people who sit down. And I remember when I was working at Abbey, you know, I might see someone and pray for them in morning prayers that we had, you know, Lord, please encouragement and please encourage them today. And, you know, I don't know whether it was just me or whether it was God, but occasionally it seemed like God was saying to me, well, if you encourage them, I can encourage them. Because I need your voice. I need your voice, you know, to go and do that. So on the back of that, before we do our favorite film moment, um, I was inspired last year by the mayor of Bogota, believe it or not, from 2001 to 2003. I didn't meet him. I read about him in a book about rudeness. And he changed the city of Bogota through doing lots of things. But one of the things he did was he gave out loads of thumbs-up cards because people didn't care about each other. So he gave out these cards to say, next time you see someone doing something good, give them a thumbs-up to say, that is a really good thing, keep doing it. And I thought, I'm going to nick that idea. I really like that. So... I did these cards which say, well done, I really like what you did there. That's all they say, well done, really like what you did there. And ever since, whenever I speak, I've, um, I've put a pile there with my books at the back. I put them out and I say to people, if there's someone that you just want to encourage, either because they're going through a difficult time or because you just want to say, thanks for helping me, or do you know what, you really inspire me, or the way you live your life is, is great, keep going. Anything, really. You might not even know who you're going to give it to yet. Please feel free to take one or two of these from the back. And they're little encouragement cards just to say, keep going. And also, very recently on the back of that, I've done these other little cards which talks about how we're created to be unique. 
We're not supposed to all be the same. We really matter to God. So if you want to take that to encourage yourself or again to pass on someone else, again, there's a little part at the back. But just another way, really, of sitting down with people and bringing God's blessing into their life, whether or not they're Christians, you know, but wanting to pass that on, really. Okay, so if you've got a favorite film or a first film memory going to the cinema, uh, just give you a few seconds now to grab the person next to you and have a quick chat. Don't worry if you don't have one now. Okay. Sorry to uh, stop you there. You might want to um, continue the conversations later. I just want to say, I've started doing that movie quiz, and I'm baffled. It's very good. It's very good. I think I've got some of them, but that's, it's a real challenge. Just to let you know here that these two lists represent the top money-making films of all time. And the reason there's two lists is that that list there is uh, when you don't adjust for inflation. So very recently, about two weeks ago, a film came out called Avengers Endgame, another Marvel film. It shot up to number two. It's made masses of money in two weeks. It's overtaken Titanic. And uh, it, without adjusting, as I say, for inflation, that's what it looks like. But when you adjust for inflation, the biggest money-making film of all time is Gone with the Wind. And then you, this film is more interesting, I think, in some ways, because you get things like Snow White and The Exorcist and Ben-Hur and The Lion King as you go down the list. And noticeably, Avengers Endgame is 36 in that list, whereas it's number two in that one. So you can see the difference that it does make, really. So I, just, I sometimes throw that up when people are talking about their favourite films, really. Would anyone like to stick a hand in the air? We don't have time to do many, but just to hear one or two film titles that had a mention that you were talking about. Anyone like to tell the rest of us the film that you were talking about? Yeah, sure. I, I was a teenager. We went to see The Birds. If you remember. Oh, good. Yeah. It's just interesting. Not the film, but as people walked out of the, the cinema... continue your conversations later on my first uh, film experience was going to see Whistle Down the Wind and I've been in love with Hayley Mills ever since I think she's a little bit in love with me but I'm not sure now occasionally um, I go and see a film and something about the film hits me between the eyes for me as if it's God saying Dave take note this is really important this is something that I want you to remember and it happened with this film A Star is Born there's been five versions of A Star is Born 
first one was back in the 1930s, I believe. This is the latest one. And uh, it's, it's got Lady Gaga and uh, uh, Bradley Cooper in it. And uh, Lady Gaga plays Ali, who's a club singer. And uh, Bradley Cooper is Jack. And he's a massive rock star, but he's about to be on the wane. And she is the rising star. She's going to be the star that's born. Now, it, it isn't particularly a film that blew me away, really, but this moment did. So what I'm going to do is, I haven't got the moment, but I've got bits around it that I'm going to show you, and then I will tell you afterwards about that moment when it really hit me between the eyes. So what happens is, Ali here, she's chatting to Jack in a car park, and she sings in this little bit of a song that she's made up. And um, uh, what she doesn't realise is, he remembers it, and he takes it away, and he makes it bigger. And then the next time that she sees him, he has invited her to come to his concert. And, she, and she's standing by the side of the stage. And he says to her, come on and sing it with me because I've turned it into a much bigger song. And she doesn't want to go on because she's dressed in jeans and T-shirt and didn't expect to sing in front of thousands of people, thanks very much. So, but she does go on. But I'll just show you a few bits around that and I'll say then the little moment that really hit me. Tell me something, boy Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? Is that me? I finished on that still because that's how she feels. She doesn't want to be on that stage doing that. But it's what he says to her to get her to come onto the stage. So he says, I've, I've, you know, I've taken your song and made it bigger and I want you to sing it with me. And she says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Not tonight, not out there, not like this. And he says this. He says, I'm going to sing it anyway. All you have to do is trust me and join in. I'm going to sing it anyway. All you've got to do is trust me and join in. And when I heard that line, it was like a real boom moment. Because what I felt was, Jesus talked about his father was always at work. And he said what he did was, he joined in with that. And if you're like me, you know, you feel like, oh, the world's on your shoulders. You've got to change it yourself. You've got to, 
you know, if you don't do this, if you don't pray enough, if you don't work enough, it isn't going to happen. And it was like God was saying to me, Dave, I'm, I'm doing the work anyway. What I want you to do is trust me and join in with it. And even if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter. Just join in. It's like God is out there all the time singing his song. You know, people have experiences of him, probably don't even realize that that's what they're having. But he's always at work. And he's saying to us, will you join in with what you can bring? And it's all kinds of things that we bring, isn't it? Jesus spoke on another occasion about how living water was going to rise up out of us as followers. And it would bless it would bless the land. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 47. Living water that goes out and blesses the land. So I don't know what you can do. Maybe you love baking or sport or science or listening or writing. Writing it is for me. Anything, you know, that we can bring to God and say, can you bring your living water through that? You're at work already, Lord. I bring what I can do. Can you, can you work through that? And what's really important to me about that song is this. If you notice in the story here, he doesn't give her a song and say, I want you to sing this. She brings her song and he makes it bigger. She brings her song, her little song, and he does what she can't do. He enlarges it. The cards that uh, I've got at the back there. I uh, went to one church and I gave, you know, I said, you know, I've got these cards you want to give them out. And they really liked it. So much so, they took all the cards I had. And when I went back two months later, they'd nicked my idea and done their own. So now there's their version of my card. And then I get an email from a church in France, from someone in France. One of that church, a member of that church, had gone to France, taken one of the cards. And I got this email picture of a French version of the card. Now, I'm not saying any of that to big myself up because it's nothing to do with me. You know, I just do those cards. But it's like God went, Dave, you just don't know what might happen here. Just bring those cards, you know. And I did it. And maybe, you know, I write books, but maybe those are the most important three lines I'll ever write. I don't know how far those cards will go. But I just say that as this illustration. We bring what we can do. And bring the things that you don't feel are very spiritual. And say to God, what, what, can, you, what can you do with this? Can you use it in some way? You know, and yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think we've got time to just do one or two more clips. Um, Uh, anyone mind plane crashes? <laughs> you don't see it. Actually, you don't see it in this. This is a film called Sully. Anyone seen Sully? Yeah, Miracle on the Hudson. Okay, we'll do this one. Right. So this is based on a true story. This is Sully here. It's his nickname. Tom Hanks playing the pilot, and that's his co-pilot there. And uh, the true story is that they take off, and very soon they're hit by a... Is it a flock? Can you have a flock of Canada geese? It's Canada geese, anyway. They, they go into the engines. All the engines, I think, pretty much are knocked out. plane is full of passengers. They, can't, they basically can't get back to where they've taken off from, and they can't get to the next airport. So there's Tom Hanks having to call the decision. What does he do? What does he do? And he sees the Hudson River, and he does what no, I don't think anyone has ever done before. He thinks, we're just going to have to go down. going to have to go down into the Hudson and see what happens. And this, a lot of the film is about the inquiry afterwards. So when I watch it, I do think about, you know, there's that great, I mean, it happened a lot with Jesus' miracles, I think. But there's that great story, that blind man being healed on the Sabbath. I think it was on the Sabbath, when they... They question him, the Pharisees. They put him on trial, really, don't they, almost? And he's, you know, he says this lovely line about, 
All I know is I was blind and now I can see. It's a great moment. So I think of that when I watch this, you know, here are these guys who saved all these people's lives, which isn't a spoiler, by the way, because you know that very soon in the film. And here they are almost on trial for what they did because they didn't follow the protocol. Have a look at this. Today we begin with our operation and human performance investigation on the crash of USA Airways Flight 1549. Water landing. Captain? This was not a crash. It wasn't a ditching. We knew what we were trying to execute here. It was not a, it's not a crash. It was a forced water landing. Why didn't you attempt to return to the glory? There simply was not enough altitude. The Hudson was the only place that was long enough and smooth enough and wide enough to even attempt to land the airplane safely. Air traffic testified that you stated you were returning to LaGuardia, but you did not. I realized I could make it back, and it would have eliminated all the other options. Returning to LaGuardia would have been a mistake. Okay, well, let's get into how you calculated all those parameters. There was no time for calculating. I had to rely on my experience of managing the altitude and speed of thousands of flights over four decades. You're saying you didn't do anything? I eyeballed it. You eyeballed it? Yes. Our job is to investigate how a plane ended up in the Hudson River. On the Hudson River? Isn't it a little early in the year to go fishing? Seeking the facts is hardly fishing, Mr. Skiles. Okay, then here's the most important fact. There's only two people who know what happened in the cockpit that day, and I'm one of them. And we appreciate your perspective. Why do you even think we're here today? It's because Captain Sullenberger did not head back to LaGuardia. Look, I just finished training on the A320, and I can tell you the only reason the plane operated as well as it did, that the aircraft could land anywhere, is because Captain Solenberger turned on the auxiliary power unit. He was simply following the QRH. No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't following proper procedure at all. And I know because I had the QRH in my hands. If he had followed the damn rules, we'd all be dead. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is Cactus 1549. Hit birds. We've lost thrust on both engines, and we are turning back towards the warrior. Which engine did you lose? Oh, Ignition? Ignition. Thrust letters confirm idle. Idle. Cactus 1549, if we can get a few, do you want to try to land runway 13? We are unable. We may end up at the Hudson. It's going to be left traffic, runway 31. Unable. Okay, what do you need to land? No reload for 30 seconds in your master one and two, confirm off. Too low, off. Three. Too low, three. Too low, three. Too low, three. This is the captain. Brace for impact. Sorry, that's all I've got. So uh, we can watch the film <laughs> and see what happens. Uh, there's, it's great. They revisit that that incident several times during the film and that's one of those moments um but yeah you know that i love this moment in the interrogation where he basically just says well you know we wouldn't be here we'd be dead you know we didn't follow protocol but if we had we wouldn't be here now and that's our story and you can't really argue with that can you 
And, you know, it reminds me of how important our own stories are, really. I mean, I love theology and finding out lots, as much as I can, about what's, you know, the context and all that in the Bible and, and how we can pass that on to others. But I need, you know, I'm constantly reminded as well that actually you, you don't have to know all that theology, do you? Your own story of God at work in your life, like that blind man who says, well, I don't know if he's the Messiah or not. All I know is that I was blind and, and now I can see. And of course, our stories don't convince everybody, do they? I mean, I think in that incident, some people say, oh, it's not the man that was blind. It's somebody else. It's not actually him that was blind. He's an imposter. So people, you know, if their hearts are not ready, then there'll always be reasons not to believe. But however God is at work in your life or has been, your story is vital. Um, you know, I, I was always a bit disappointed that I didn't have one of those, you know, I used to be a bank robber uh, stories and I went to prison and then I got converted and then the next time I went into prison, I received the Holy Spirit. And then the next... No, there's a joke in there somewhere. But anyway. Um, but, you know, I didn't have that dramatic testimony. Grew up in a Christian family. And my, um, my own testimony is a sort of drip feed thing. You know, I, I read a book called Rum Baby Rum when I was about 12. And I loved it. And I love it still. And that really moved me. And I got... Uh, um, uh, what's the word when the bishop puts his hand on, his, on your head? Thank you. Oh, senior moment. Sorry. It was a meaningful day. Um, but, you know, I, it was actually, I got confirmed and the bishop put his hand on, his head, on, his, on my head and I felt like crying. I felt so moved, but I didn't know why. And there were lots of moments like that in my life. And it was little by little by little for me. It wasn't a big dramatic thing. But that story matters because some of your stories are like that, I bet. You know, that, that we don't, God comes into our life, does something, but we don't realize it's him, and so we carry on, and then he does something else. And my story went on until I was 18, you know. And I was frightened of being converted, because I thought it was going to be very emotional, and also that I would look, it would be embarrassing, and it, I would look stupid. And so I kept putting it off and holding God at bay, you know, and eventually God broke through all of that, really. And, but you will have your own stories of God at work, and it doesn't have to fit a mold does it? It is vital, your story. There's, it's, this is slightly out of context, but there's a lovely moment in Revelation where it talks about the martyrs. There's a group of martyrs. And what it says is they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus and his death, and their testimony, their story of his work in their lives. Okay, time for, I'm hoping, one more clip. Just to say, that's my website. If you'd like to see more of what I do, uh, you can download lots of creative material. It's all free. I always say to people, if you want to change what I've done or it gives you your own idea, please feel free to do that. All you do is you put your email address in that box and I have all your bank details. (laughs) Now, you get an email on a Friday which tells you about what I've posted up that week. Okay. Uh, do we have time? Do we have time to do one more? Yes. A little bit? Okay. This is Hidden Figures. Anyone seen Hidden Figures? Have you heard of Hidden Figures? Ah, I th- I'm sure some of you will enjoy this. This is a great story, a true story um, about uh, in the 60s uh, in America when they were trying, the space race is on, they're trying to, Americans are trying to get a man out into space <clears throat> and they're racing the Russians. And there's a huge number of black women involved who are brilliant mathematicians. Yeah. It was a book as well as a film. And that's why it's called Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures of the Mathematical Calculations, Hidden Figures of These Women, because nobody knew their story, you see. And so what this is about is these women who will not give up, even though everything's against them. You know, their background, their colour, their, the fact that they're women, you know. And what I'm going to show you is uh, this um, Catherine... Uh, 
Goebel, I think her name is, one of the characters in it. And um, she is enlisted to check the calculations of an office full of white men. So she's popular. And uh, she can't use the same coffee pot as them. Can't use the same toilets as them. She has to run for miles to get to the toilet. All this kind of thing. And, um, but the other thing is, is because she's not, she's not sort of uh, an accepted person, she can't read everything they've written. So she's supposed to check their calculations, but loads of it is blacked out. However, she's got her own way of getting around that. So she's dragged into the boss's office, Kevin Costner, who is always good when you put a suit and a tie on him, I think. He's the boss, and he's trying to find out how she knows all this information that she's not supposed to have read. How you know the Redstone couldn't support orbital flight? That's classified information. It's top secret. Well, it's no secret why the Redstone tests keep failing. The numbers don't lie. And you figured all that out with this. Half the data's redacted. Well, what's there tells the story if you read between the lines. You did the math? Yes, sir. And how do you know about the Atlas Rock? That's not math. That data's not here like you said. It's classified. I held it up to the light. You held it up to the light? Yes, sir. <laughs> well, there it is. Mm-hmm. Atlas. What's your name? Catherine Goldberg. Were you a spy, Catherine? Am I what? So are you a Russian spy? No, sir. I'm not Russian. <laughs> Paul, what's happening here? Mr. Harrison, I would like to attend today's briefing. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, sir, the data changes so fast. The capsule changes, the weight and the landing zones are all changing every day. I do my work, you attend these briefings, I have to start over. Colonel Glenn launches in a few weeks. We don't have the man figured out yet. Why is it she can't attend? Because she doesn't have clearance, Al. I cannot do my work effectively if I do not have all of the data and all of the information as soon as it's available. I need to be in that room hearing what you hear. Pentagon briefings are not for civilians. It requires the highest clearance. I feel like I'm the best person to present my calculations. No, no, no I am not. You, and, and she is a woman. There is no protocol for a woman. Okay, okay I did that it. part, Paul. But within these walls, who, uh, who makes the rules? You, sir, you are the boss. You just have to act like one, sir. (laughs) So we have the vehicle speed, the launch window, and for argument's sake, the landing zone is the boss. Should be enough to figure the go, no go? Yeah, in theory, sir. We need to be past theory at this. We'll be able to calculate a go, no go with that information. When exactly is that going to happen? Catherine? Have a go at it? Goal point for re-entry is 2,900 miles from where we want Colonel Glenn to land. If we assume that's the Bahamas, 544 miles per hour of 46.56 degrees, 2,900 miles. Okay, so that puts your landing zone at 5. 
7.0667 degrees north, 77.3333 degrees west, which is here. Give or take 20 square miles. I like your number. <laughs> Sorry, for some reason the lip syncing was out at that, on that clip a bit. But just to say, really, you know, this is a bunch of women who everything's against them, but they refuse to give up. And they battle on, and they are, <clears throat> you know, they're very courageous, they're very clever, and that's, this is really, you know, a lot of the story. And, um, and they do break through, they don't give up. And just reminds me, you know, Jesus tells, it's interesting, Jesus is radical with his storytelling. Because quite, in some of his stories, they're either particularly aimed at women, like, you know, a woman loses a coin, you know, or no one stitches old cloth on new garments or whatever. That, that in their culture, those you know, that was a, a woman's kind of job and role. Or he tells stories where women are the heroes and represent all of us. And one of them is a persistent widow with a corrupt judge. And she, like these women, she won't give up. She won't stop bashing on. And it's a, it's about prayer. It's about calling out for justice. And I think it's also about the nature of God, because it's always amazed me. You know, this is Jesus, in a sense, being theologically incorrect, because the, ju- the widow represents us, and the judge represents God, and the judge is corrupt and horrible. And I think it's something in there about how, if you're like me, you have days where you fear that God is unjust. You look around and you think, where's the justice in the world? And also you fear with the things you and I do wrong, that he's going to judge us harshly. And I think Jesus was some maybe tapping into that, saying to people, even though you've got that idea of God, don't give up. Keep going. You will break through. You will you know, keep praying and keep going for justice, really. So I'll just leave you with this thought. So it's okay, I'll just say a little prayer. Um, and then uh, just to say there's those cards at the back if you would like to take one. Lord, just thinking back to that uh, thought about how we can offer all that we are to you. Our strengths and weaknesses, our experiences, our personalities, the things that we love, the gifts and hobbies that we have. And Lord, I pray that maybe one or two people here, this weekend might be a moment when they offer to you something they've never offered to you before, to say, Lord, can you work through that? Can you use that to bring living water to the people around to the places that they're part of, Lord. But thank you so much for your stubborn mercy that you refuse to give up on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks very much for coming. That's it.